Dear friends, uh, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, where whether you're across town or across the globe, I hope you're enjoying the ripeness of spring. Uh, I hope you're reveling in the juicy potential and hopefulness of the season. Thanks for spending your valuable time with me and my inspiring guests uh, tonight and always. And that wonderful cut opening the show uh, with its important message of Awaken uh, was by Alea Deo. Well, if you're new to the show, I'm your hostess, Karen Tate, uh, named one of the 13 most influential women in goddess spirituality, also a wisdom keeper of the goddess spirituality movement. I'm the author of two acclaimed books, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, um, and uh, what some might call its bookend, Walking an Ancient Path, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth. Uh, So whether you're an armchair tourist or you actually get out there on the ground, uh, whether you're on your own or part of a group looking for insight and ideas to live a goddess-inspired life, I invite you to check out my website at karentate.com and learn more about my books, tours, talks, and workshops. In fact, uh, I'm actually just back from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where I was a guest of the women and men of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Lancaster, who were just a delightful. Uh, I had a talk on Friday night, a workshop all day Saturday, uh, followed by a ritual. And then Sunday uh, morning, I led the services uh, for, at the Unitarian Universalist Church, followed by a talk on pilgrimage and sacred sites of goddess around the world. And when I had a little bit free time, they were kind enough uh, to take me around to show me Amish country. And uh, we uh, closed off the long weekend with a wonderful dinner in this old seminary that reminded me of Hogwarts Dining Hall. It was a splendid trip, and uh, I'm available to visit your town and group as well. And I have to say thanks uh, to Linda Dobbins and uh, the other Linda, um, also Judy and um, uh you know, Suzanne, and the rest of the Web and Wheel folks. Um, It was really incredible. Uh, And if you're interested in hearing uh, the talk that I gave uh, for the Unitarian Universalist uh, service, uh, it was actually recorded and uh, it went out live. And I have uh, a link to it on my Facebook page. You have to scroll down a little bit past some of the Bernie stuff, uh, but it's there. And um, it's about the sacred feminine for a sustainable future. You know, if we look at the sacred feminine from the aspect of a deity archetype or ideal, and if you can't find it and you're interested in hearing it, just uh, pop me a, a, a private message on Facebook. Well, tonight, uh, it is my great pleasure to be speaking to a woman you may have seen on television and in the news. Uh, She is the feminist Muslim journalist and women's rights advocate, Ashra Namani, whose book uh, titled uh, Standing Alone, An an American Woman's Struggle for the Soul of Islam. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, uh, and that's what I was reading as I made my way back and forth between L.A., Pennsylvania, and Washington. 
Washington, D.C. last week. Uh, Azra and I, I realized, I uh, have many things in common to talk about tonight, uh, namely the transformational aspects of pilgrimage, um, standing up to an establishment, feminism, uh, the sacred feminine, unearthing powerful women from the past who have been marginalized or buried in our patriarchal culture, uh, finding our voice, which is uh, so important uh, for women today and not always an easy thing to do. Uh, so you won't want to miss our interview tonight, and uh, we invite you to share the link uh, to the show with your friends. And remember, if this, uh, if this is the kind of programming you enjoy, uh, Blog Talk is not free for hosts like me. Uh, we see, uh, and, and as we see uh, more and more, how vital independent media is becoming as the mainstream media has uh, given up on journalistic integrity because of their corporate owners. Uh, your contributions are needed and welcome. I pay out of my pocket to give my guests a platform to teach and share their wisdom. And uh, if you'd like to help, there are actually PayPal buttons on my uh, website. All you have to do is go to the Goddess Store page, and uh, you can make a credit card contribution or uh, a check of any amount. And as always, as I've done over the years, I will continue to do um, all of the free things uh, that I do to teach and share and raise awareness, like this show, uh, my Goddess Calling uh, audiobook series that you can find on YouTube, the free meditations on my website, the classes and talks and interviews that are there as well. So please enjoy it all and share the liberation theology of the sacred feminine with your friends. But let's not delay any longer uh, getting to tonight's fabulous guest, Ajra Namini. Uh, let me share her bio uh, with you. Uh, this is her short bio because... Uh, uh, her full bio would uh, take quite a while to read. Uh, she's a former Wall Street uh, Journal correspondent uh, who's also written for the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Time Magazine on Islam, and has covered the war in Afghanistan for Salon.com. She's spoken about women's rights and Islam on CNN, PBS, NPR, and the BBC. I saw her uh, not that long ago on Bill Moore, actually. Uh, a Muslim born in India. Uh, Ajra was raised in the foothills of West Virginia, and she, uh, well, we'll see. I believe she still currently lives in Morgantown uh, with her son, uh, Shabili. So, Ajra, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I just did my road trip from Morgantown to Virginia, which is where I'm living nowadays, but it was all one big state at one time, so I'm happy to cross the boundaries. Okay. Well, thank you for making time for my listeners uh, across the globe tonight, because I think this is, you know, such an important message. And you know, we're we're going to get into the obvious. You know, we'll we'll briefly, uh, you know, touch on the attack uh, in Belgium. Uh, I'm sure that's on the minds of many. Uh, but first, you know, I'd like to talk to you, you know, feminist woman to feminist woman, you know, about women's issues. Um, I, I guess I want to ask you first: Are people surprised? that as a Muslim that you're a feminist. Uh, I, I think maybe some people um, think that there's a disconnect between feminism and Islam. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people think it's a contradiction in terms and uh, that, you know, one, they're redundant. or They're not redundant, but that they're contradictions, sorry. But what I actually think is that uh, feminism and faith can be redundant and that faith 
if it can be expressed through a real sense of the sacred feminine, can be very much an expression of empowerment. Um, it took me a, a lifetime, really, to come to that realization. But, you know, growing up in my family, I was taught that I could be anything I wanted to be, though I was also instructed to live by these guidelines that become those voices within us that disempower us. And and I think it's that contradiction that usually people think about when they think about religion and especially Islam and feminism. Right, right. Well, myself, I grew up a recovering Catholic, uh, as I as I call it now, in the Bible Belt of Louisiana. So you probably yeah. uh, have a sense of what that was like. And um, yeah, we do get these messages, you know. Um, and and in your book, uh, which was which was wonderful, and I I highly recommend it uh, to my listeners. You know, you really get a sense of that internal struggle uh, that you you know logically. Uh, that you're equal, you know, that right. uh, you should be able to do anything you want to do, but yet you have this, these nagging uh, thoughts and traditions tugging at you. You know, it's like you're, if there's a tug of war going on. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just have come to realize that, you know, we all have those voices within us. Like they, they come in uh, so many different forms, so many different names maybe different human beings in our lives that expressed voices of subordination to us. Uh, But I think that, you know, I was just thinking the other day that I I think that you could go up to just about anybody in this universe, male and female, quite honestly, and say, I know that there are voices inside of your head that tell you that you can't be all that you can be in this world. Mm -hmm. and. You know, and I and I think that all of our journeys is about trying to come to clarity and a complete sense of empowerment. You know, for me, right. even before even before I found it on my path of Islam, I uh, was had a book assignment to study the ancient philosophy called Tantra or Tantra, as it's pronounced in my native India, and that took me through the real path of the sacred feminine expressed in Hinduism and Buddhism and it so it took me going outside my faith to the temples and pilgrimage sites of those religions to really come to sense that hey in my own identity I can be all that I want to be Right. And I do want to go there, you know, as maybe part of our talk about pilgrimage. Uh, But, you know, I think, you know, I I think Islam um, gets a bad rap. You know, here in the United States, uh, uh, you know, because it's such a Christian oriented nation and and I mean and let's let's face it, so many people they don't know that much about their own Christian faith, much less, you know, Islam or uh Judaism. I know they certainly don't know very much about goddess spirituality or Buddhism. I mean, you know, a Buddhist is the people I grew up with, they'd never met anyone who wasn't a Catholic or a Baptist and they could go their entire life like that. Um so I and I think all of these patients patriarchal religions, whichever one uh, they are, um, it, it's a tough road for women. I mean, we see women in the quiverful movement of a dominionist um, 
you know, the conservative dominionist uh, Christianity, uh, evangelicals, what they struggle with. You know, they're they're no more than an incubator for the man's seed, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, their role in life is having babies, and that's about all um, I think they can expect to do. Um, but Islam, I think, you know, because of terrorism and everything, I think Islam maybe uh, has a... Uh, a more difficult time getting people to understand that it's not all about, you know, this, what we see in the news today with the terrorism or the um, the battle between the Sunnis and the Shias. Or is it is it pronounced Wahhabi, the Saudi Arabian brand of uh, Islam that uh, is particularly extreme? Yeah, it is. And you know, I I um I grew up in West Virginia, so much like you grew up in. You know, rural America, and uh, people aren't necessarily exposed to all of the cultures of the world. But I, I really like in in my case, in, as a Muslim, and then I think for everybody in each one of their faiths, it's really on our shoulders, I believe, to express the faith as we wish it to be. You know, sort of like Gandhi's yeah. quote: "Be the change you want to see in the world." You know, I take yeah. responsibility, and I think you can hear it in my book for the way Islam is perceived in the world, because the truth is it's not just about the terrorism. It's about the fact that over the last 40 years we have had an ideology exported from the government of Saudi Arabia and now also the government of Qatar, uh, as well as Iran, that is equal opportunity sexist and that puts forward a interpretation of Islam that is to me, very regressive, and and as long as we as Muslims don't stand up to it, then I don't blame anybody for having that perception of the faith because we've allowed it to take hold in our communities. Um, you know, as you, as you read in my book, we have a situation now where women are sent into the basements and back halls of mosques all across America in the most awful of conditions, and and that's on us, you know. So if somebody goes there from the interfaith um, group and sees the women have to sit behind a wall, like I don't, I don't blame them for thinking, hmm, this isn't a very feminist faith, you know, because the leaders of that mosque have concluded that women are too sexy to be in the same presence of men. And and it's the same battle, like just like you're pointing out, that women in all religions have faced. But to me, this is like our modern-day 21st century battle, and it's on our shoulders as Muslims to to face it and to fight for the type of Islam that we believe in that is feminist yeah. and tolerant. Yeah, and, and right there alongside you. You know, I mean, as a former Christian, I believe, you know, Christians, Christians have an obligation to do the same thing, you know, as do Jews, you know, to try to bring equality uh, yeah. you know, into the world, um, you know, it, rather than, you know, continue this repression or exploitation uh, or, or domination. I think we all have to take responsibility for our own education um, and, uh you know, do our part. I mean, that's why I do uh, my radio show here, because I believe the values of the sacred feminine are, um, you know, and and, and they're very similar to other faiths as well, you know, Uh, but the feminine values have been marginalized and demonized and um, swept under the rug. 
Um, yeah, but, but you're, and, you're, and you've chosen a path for, you know, you've chosen your path for realizing it. And, and I think that's what's on all of us to, if we believe, let's fight for it, let's live it, you know, let's create it, let's make it happen. Uh, I mean, I'm right. so proud to, you know, I'm so proud. I, I um, wanted to speak to you because I do believe in the sacred feminine and I believe in it in, in faith and non-faith, you know. I believe in it in all of its expressions. So I'm so proud, like, to know my Mormon feminist friends, and I, I like mm-hmm. stood with I stood with my Catholic feminist friends, male and female, who protested mm-hmm. when the Pope went, you know, to the uh, cathedral, and it was all the boys, right, in robes mm-hmm. that were with him. Tomorrow, uh, in Washington D.C., one of the defrocked priests who supports uh, women's ordination and Catholicism goes before the judge, you know, for the arrest during that protest. And I'm so happy mm-hmm. to support them because, you know, they're, they're living their values just like you are. Yes. And I really appreciate that. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, I know uh, last October uh, I was invited to speak at the Council for the Parliament of World Religions, and in some of the opening sessions it was, uh, you know, this was – you know, part of the topic was, I think, finding the heart of humanity, and it was, a, you know, about women's equality as one of the major topics, and it was so funny. I don't think people realized the the visual impact that in one of these opening sessions, the whole stage was just men. And, yeah, you know, and exactly. they had... All of these women in the state, you know, out in the yeah. audience, and they didn't let them get away with it. They said, "Where are the women?" And they started shouting. You know, that's so great. Um, I missed that. I was there for just one day. Um, I went to for a panel that we, you know, got in there about uh, standing up against violence against women. You know, in, yeah. in faith, and it was a really powerful session. Um, there was, you know, women and men from all of the faiths, and each one of them, I, I, I started my session and I asked, how, which one of you have ever faced the consequence of challenging power and control? And everybody had, you know, an example. But sure enough, I mean, you know, from my own faith, one of the leaders of the World Parliament of Religions was the Saudi cleric. They helped fund that World Parliament of Religions. And one of my Muslim feminist friends sat at his table at one point without her headscarf because she doesn't wear a headscarf. And his bodyguards like, virtually surrounded her until she left that table. And and to me that's wow. so ridiculous. Yeah, and, well, it's, hypocr- it's, it's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy exactly. in and it a way. Captures, it captures the tension that you're talking about. And, and yeah, and it's, it's absurd because it's just like your promo said, you know, media outlets have their corporate sponsors. So do the mm-hmm. religions. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, they're well, they're businesses. Yeah, they are. They are. They are. I mean, they're they're in the business of power and control, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I think people have to think about that because uh, if they were really in the business of spirituality and religion, they wouldn't have so many of the man-made rules <laughs> right. um, that they have. And 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 yeah. you know, speaking of which, you know, you brought up um, the uh, the double standard uh, between you know uh, men and Islam. I mean, of course, we have another religion 
Americans too. I mean, I want to, you know, make sure I'm a equal opportunity um, uh, offender here, or whatever you'd call right. it. Um, but you, you, I mean, in your life, you know, you started out. It was it was difficult. You had your uh, your son Shabili with a, a man that you loved uh, out of wedlock, and you know, he was able to just walk away and. Um, he suffered no consequence from that, but yet it was you, uh, like so many women, uh, you know, have the stigma of, uh, you know, of a of a single mother, and um, uh, that was that was very difficult for you in those early days. Yeah, and you know, uh, I didn't even know if I was going to bring my son into this world. I, you know, contemplated contemplated having an abortion, which in itself, as as you know, in traditional cultures, is a very difficult choice. Uh, but I wondered if it would be the easier route because otherwise I would live with this lifetime of stigma. But but indeed, it was my parents, my, my loving, amazing parents, who told me, bring your baby into this world. And it was back in West Virginia where my mom walked me around the neighborhood and said, you don't live in a village in Pakistan. You don't have to live with shame and on October 16th, 2002, when my little baby came into this world, I saw him so perfect and and flawless and said, I'm not going to live with the shame. I'm not going to live with the stigma. I'm going to live with honesty. And that's when I really knew my divine feminine. I knew my power. I had been uh, you know, working on this book that was called Tantrika, then Traveling the Road of Divine Love. And holding my little baby uh, in my hand, so perfect and so fine, was finally my touching the divine in this world. And so my my baby, his name is um, actually Shibli, is how it's pronounced. Very very um, uh, easier than I, I know. You're making a good effort with it, but his name is Shibli, <laughs> which means um, my lion cub, and then. And then his middle name is Daniel, a uh, variation of Daniel, um, which means God is the judge. And and I intentionally chose it because I wanted to say that, you know, human beings cannot be the judge of this. Like this is, right. this is beauty, you know, incarnated into this world and the divine incarnated and and uh and and it's the divine that's the judge of all of us, you know, and in and, and that I will never be indicted or prosecuted or persecuted for bringing this life into the world. And so we 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 have lived now without any of that cloud of, over us, and I love that. That's wonderful. And, you know, and I love that parallel that you drew, you know, as you were doing the pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina and Jerusalem and um, and, and you were – you know, sort of basking in that um, in, in that beautiful feeling of uh, of divine love. I mean, to me, what I was getting from that was, you know, that's what's at the should be at the heart of all of our religions, not this other, you know, these other you know man made rules of uh, oppression or exploitation or shame. Um, right. It's it's that incredible love you felt when you had you know your beautiful son. Um, I mean. Th- that's that's touching the divine, you know that right there, and the rest is just bull. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, and it took um, it took just feeling his 
you know, when a baby is born, they're, um, they have so little hair on their head that when mm-hmm. you put your cheek against their head, right, their skull, like it just engulfs you in their warmth. I'll, I'll just never forget that feeling ever in my life <laughs> of pressing him and just leaning into his, into his crown chakra, right? It's his right. his radiance, really, that's... right. That it's that heat that I'm feeling, and and um, and it just filled me up. I mean, it it was everything that I had been pursuing. That state of non-duality, you know, that state of impermanence and non-attachment, because you are this being's mother, but yet one day. You know, every day is a step towards them leaving you, right? And mm. this is unconditional love because one day they will fly from the nest, and you will surrender them to the heavens and 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 wish them well in this universe always. And um, and and so it was just so profound and so meaningful and. And it was only because of the gift of my parents' love, right, for me, that yeah. I was then able to know this this next generation of love from my baby. Right. And now he's 13, and, you know, we went to the dentist today to see if he's ready for braces. Um, <laughs> I won't even tell you, you know, the hormonal stuff we're dealing with for the, with the dermatologist appointment. <laughs> you know, this is the ordinary of life, but... And, you know, I'm on him because he's watching Netflix during spring break while his grandparents are there, you know. So it's like all of the mundane, ordinary. But You're right. I, um, every every moment that, that I experience that, I'm always trying to still touch that divine, you know, that divine right, experience right. that we, I want yeah, to know. And, and yeah. And as cliche as it may sound, it's that it's that love, it's that divine love that um, will save us all, you know. Um, you know, I, I loved in your book when you drew comparisons between you and your son uh, being abandoned um, and, and that... Uh, a powerful woman in the Quran and in the Bible that we never hear about, uh, Hagar. Uh, and I don't, I'm not sure I realized that uh, Abraham abandoned uh, Hagar and Ishmael uh, out in the desert. Um, and, and it made me think about Isis. Uh, Isis uh, ended up a single mother uh, and had to take care of her son Horus alone. And um, tell us, uh, tell us more about Hagar, um, because I think you've sort of reclaimed her for Muslim women as a um, as an archetype or a role model. Oh yeah, thank you. You know, I uh had hardly heard about Hagar or Hajar as she's um called in, in Muslim tradition growing up. Even though, you know, when I was in Sunday school I would ask my uh Muslim Sunday school teacher, what about the women prophets? You know? I wanna know about mm-hmm. them. And to me, you know, in fact Hagar rises to that level and uh she was according to Christian and Jewish history uh, the concubine of Abraham, but in Muslim history she becomes a second wife. She gives birth to Ishmael, and indeed, because of this conflict with Sarah, 
she ends up sent out into the desert. And the Muslim story is that she ends up in what's where what is now modern day Mecca in in Saudi Arabia. Abraham leaves her there, and one of the points that I make is that she surrenders to her destiny. She doesn't cling to him for safety and security, but just accepts that this is her destiny and uh, and then tries through her own power of will to find sustenance for her baby. And so there in the desert in Mecca, he supposedly kicks into the desert. This magical water springs from the earth, and, and the tale is that that water has never stopped flowing. And so to me, it's a metaphor for the idea that, you know, this wellspring of nourishment has come from this mother's strength and courage. And and so I really found great power and connection in her story. Uh, yeah. And, and there were the, the men, the so, so-called male guardians of these stories, didn't appreciate the fact that I did call her a single mother, but she was there by herself, and as I pointed right. out, she had she had no child custody. There was no 24-hour Walgreens like I got when my son was <laughs> a little baby, and and you know she she was on her own, and um and she made it happen. And and the tribe of the Quraysh that the Prophet Muhammad was later born into came to the desert. The story goes because of her, and so to me, she's the symbolic mother of Islam. Sure. Yeah, she's a foremother. Well, and staying on the subject of powerful women, you said in your book, um, we have the warring factions of Islam, the Sunnis and the Shias. I, I had, I have to tell you, I chuckled when I read, you said because of a chick fight uh, yeah. between Fatima, Fatima and Aisha after Muhammad's death. Um, can you kind of explain that a little bit, the short version, uh, and tell yeah, us which sure. of the groups is the more moderate? Yeah. Well, after the Prophet Muhammad died, there was no named successor. And so the history books say that the battle began between one of his favorite wives' fathers, um, father named Abu Bakr. That was the wife named was Aisha, and her father was Abu Bakr. And he had a daughter named Fatima, whose husband was uh, related to the Prophet Muhammad, and his name was Ali. And so what I, you know, write, you know, half in jest, but half seriously also, is that that the battle for succession boiled down to a chick fight between Aisha and Fatima because it was a battle between whether the dad or the husband was going to become the next successor. So the dad ends up winning. Uh, Ali ends up becoming a successor later. But his followers, who believed he should be the first successor, became the Shias of Islam, and the follow and the others became the Sunnis. And you know, really, there isn't just one moderate path between the two. It's not a competition that way because there's really extremists in both. And so, right now, the government of Iran is a Shia theocracy. The government of Saudi Arabia is a Sunni theocracy. And guess what? They both agree on. They both agree on second-class status for women. They both of demand course. that a woman cover her hair. Uh, they deny women, uh, you know, as many opportunities as, as they should be afforded in movement, jobs, and all the rest. And so despite this divide, who gets screwed but the women? Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's really, you know, what our story, our conversation is about is that, 
in in whatever interpretation we have to assert the divine feminine. Right. Well, you know, one of the things that I teach about, uh, because, you know, of course, uh, we, we, you know, in patriarchy, we all have the same issues. You know, the sacred, the, the female is second class. She is there. She can, she can clean the altar. She can't teach from the altar, you know, is like, right. is what right. I like to say. And, uh, you know, one of the things I, I go out there and talk about is, you know, since mythology shapes our culture, we need to be reinterpreting, retelling telling the stories, uh, because otherwise we have all of these stories uh, with uh, a male God, which ends up in male leadership, which ends up in a male-dominated society. And I wonder if you know about uh, Merlin Stone, the feminist scholar who wrote uh, When God Was a Woman. She said the Garden of Eden myth was one of the first pieces of political propaganda, demonizing women and taking away from women their leadership and uh, the egalitarian societies that we might have enjoyed in those parts of the world. You know, I don't know it, but I love that idea that, of this political propaganda. I mean, that's what I think we have to always, you know, frame this historical myths and storytelling in religion uh, um, uh, through that lens of propaganda, the religious right. propaganda of subordinating women so you get rid of half the competition, right, for power mm-hmm. and control. I mean, it's so yeah. convenient, right? Oh, women, we're too sexy for this, or, oh, we're bleeding, so we are too weak. We're dirty. You know, there's just a million excuses. One neat thing is in Islam, um, though many stories have been used otherwise to uh, to deem women weaker, um, this and the story of Eve, we actually uh, don't blame Eve for tempting um, Adam. So that's that's one good thing. But but the tr- trust me, there's plenty more stories where women are the temptresses and the carriers of honor and virtue in the community. That did surprise me. I have to admit, um, you know that yeah. uh, that Eve wasn't singled out as the sinner, you know, and yeah, uh, 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 yeah, yeah. Well, well, let me ask you this, and and I don't mean to be offensive when I ask it. I, I'm just so curious. These yeah. these um, Muslim men who want to marry these ten year old girls. I mean, it seems like it's it's you know just a cover almost for pedophilia. I mean, what is right. it? Is it just the idea? Idea that they're e- more easily controlled, or is there more to it than that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, many layers of 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 you know of uh, justification that they use. Unfortunately, we um, you know the Prophet Muhammad was not Jesus with the stories of you know celibacy, or at least if if Jesus had just one partner, if it was Mary Magdalene, then you know it was just her because he had many wives and that thought that wife that i mentioned aisha was a child bride you know the um even the most conservative of scholars will say that she was a child when she was married to the prophet muhammad and there's many you know historical justifications used like it was an alliance or it was uh something that they did back then but unfortunately um some of the men who I think are quite sick today then uh, use that as their religious justification for having these child brides. And then after that, I think there's 
many other issues, which is the idea of honor and, and um, chastity. So the girl becomes a symbol of, of pureness and chastity and virginity, which, of course, can extend way beyond, you know, childhood, of course. Um, and and then and then there's just that that uh, societal fixation, right, with youth. Also, that that is a yeah. that is a problem. I mean, I was in India when I was reporting uh, my first book, and I was in a town that I grew up in, Hyderabad, and met this poor young girl who was sold to a Gulf sheikh in Bombay. And she had been sent off from her home on a train, and it was quite exciting, a trip for her. And she was to be wed to him, and it was just going to be a sex, you know, uh, transaction, really. Um, But you know what? She was returned back because she was considered too dark in her skin color. Lucky for her. (laughs) Yeah, almost a saving grace, right? But but this is is one of those um, ugly realities that we have to confront in our Muslim communities and and I'm not at all offended that you would ask about it because it's only the people who feel shame you know over these realities and then use shame to um, to make bad choices I think uh, for mm-hmm. honesty and critical thinking about these things they instead of dealing with these issues directly they choose instead to save face and yeah. you know um, and that's one of the things I've written about is we have these prickly topics um, from terrorism to child marriages to um, to subjugation of women that we've got to deal with. And we can't just say that people are anti-Muslim or use this term called Islamophobia to to judge people for asking very real and honest questions that they ask. You ask it about your own birth faith. You know, you ask yeah. it about Catholicism. That doesn't mean that... Uh, you know, you're a hater. You're just a critical thinker, and and yeah. I, I appreciate you um, having that moral courage too to talk about it here. Well, thank you. And well, you yeah. know, the other thing that always I think gets people riled up is the idea again, going back to the double standard that you know a, a woman and, and a you know a Muslim woman can be stoned to death because she's been raped. How in the world do they justify that? as she has shamed the family if she's been raped. Yeah, I mean, this is another problem that we have to deal with. And, you know, if, if it wasn't the law in certain countries from Pakistan to, uh, to you know, Saudi Arabia and even Iran that, um, that punish women for the act of rape, then then we could say this has nothing to do with Islam, but it is Islamic law in many of these countries. And so what happens, unfortunately, is uh, our sacred sacred letter uh, is Z. It stands for Zina. And unfortunately, even when a woman has been raped, it, it's alleged that she has had Zina or illegal sex. And uh, and there's just a twisted interpretation of religious law that says that unless she can bring uh, four witnesses, you know, that uh, that testified that they have witnessed this rape, she cannot convict the perpetrator. And and so, you know, this four witnesses was once supposed to be a protection of women that, like, you couldn't just call, you know, slut shame a woman. 
and say she had sex with somebody unless you could provide the witnesses. But it's become twisted now so that women who are raped end up actually becoming prosecuted. And there's something really wrong and messed up about it. Um, Even in Nigeria, women have been uh, punished for, like myself, having a baby outside of wedlock because our baby becomes evidence of the crime of sex outside of marriage. And and that was the very first article I ever wrote that connected for me religion and the power of the feminine because there was this woman in Nigeria just as my baby was um, becoming turning one and she was going to be killed for this act of having had a baby outside of wedlock. And that was the first article where I wrote in the first person advocating for the women, woman's right to live. Yeah, I remember you had that in your book. And, and, yeah. and you know, you're reminding me, I mean, lest listeners um, don't connect the dots, what you're reminding me of to a certain extent is how Republicans were talking about legitimate rape. Um, if you recall that in the news, yeah, and in fact, I, right. I think one of them was even a gynecologist, for heaven's sake. I wonder where in the world he must have went, you know, gone to, to college. But, you know, they were saying stuff like, well, um, you know, it was it a legitimate rape? In other words, you know, she must have wanted it. She must have enjoyed it because if if it was really forced upon her, her body has the ability to uh, right. not become pregnant. I mean, the absurdities yeah. these men, you know, um, live by. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> it, it's, that, it's like... crazy. Yeah, I mean, I I really I remember one time hearing about in uh, sexual harassment cases um, that began in the U.S. One of the first ways that they would try to discredit the women witnesses was uh, the they said that they would either use the sluts or nuts defense to try to say that the woman was either a slut or a nut, and I think that's what we deal with all the time. In, in mm-hmm. every aspect of society, in every religion, um, either, you know, she's crazy, like poor Hester Prynne, right, in The Scarlet Letter, ends up mm-hmm. in jail, right, in this fictional story, but it's obviously from a time in, in our American history, and then set out into the edge of the forest, right, while the the father of the baby was freed, and... Otherwise, the woman's just crazy, right? She's right. Um, just lost off her rocker. And I wouldn't believe this, except I see it all the time. And now I see that the weapons used against us are so often on social media. I mean, it's so aggressive out there. And, um, yeah. and it's, it's just uh, and it's something that we really have to take back. And I always support every woman, like from Taylor Swift, you know, to... Um, to uh, actresses who also, you know, dare to stand on the altar of of you know of pow- empowerment and, mm-hmm. and and shout to the rooftops that I'm not going to take it and I deserve right. better and and I really appreciate them taking a stand. 
Absolutely. Well, and and I know one of the other things, that, well, two of the other things that are really controversial. Uh, first, let's let's go to uh, FGM. Is is female genital mutilation something that comes hand in hand with uh, Islam, or is it does it depend on the tradition of the area and the country? Um, you know, because I don't think that's taught in the Quran. But don't some Muslims yeah. practice it? Yeah, I mean, and 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 um, it's a, it's true. I mean, what what happens if female genital mutilation? If anyone doesn't know, is you know this act where the clitoris is cut, and there's many stages of the cutting um, mm-hmm. from a, a, a little slice of the clitoris to cu- the actual sewing of the woman's um, private areas there. And I'll tell you something. This is a tradition that has gone beyond, beyond Islam, but Islam is used today in the 21st century to also justify its use. And I am so proud of this group of Muslim women who are from my native India. They are come from a sect called the Bora Muslims, and their religious leaders have justified it. And I cannot even tell you, I mean, the stories that I've heard and read now from among those women where they talk about themselves as little girls. You know, it's that whole idea of the little girl, the symbol of chastity, taken by the aunties, right? The enforce hers, as I call them, of this tradition, taking her to some back room somewhere, spreading her legs, putting her on the ground. And just that act, those women have told me, had fills them with trauma and then there's a cut and even the least level of cutting I have to tell people is traumatic and painful and and I've asked women the very difficult question I've said you know in um, sexuality we know that you can have a vaginal orgasm or a clitoral orgasm uh, a lot of men won't work hard enough to have women or partners, let's say, um, will, to have women have vaginal orgasms. So you damage the clitoris and you damage a woman's ability to have an orgasm potentially. And and um, and that that's a reality. And to me that's just criminal, that, that you would yeah. dare to touch the intimacy of a, of a girl and then a woman that deeply. And, and I just love that there are these women so powerful with men supporting them who are fighting it and openly and 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 courageously yeah and, and, yeah because yeah. i mean it it it's uh it it's such a horrendous thing and for people who don't uh, know how severe this is, they really should do a Google search because it is mutilation. It's another form of domination. Uh, you know, it, it's it's multi-layered. You know, it gets into the idea of controlling women's sexuality, uh, you know, because, you know, sex is supposed to be this dirty, ugly thing. And, and right. I mean, you know, there's these stories that, you know, they cut them and then they stitch them up so that they can right. just urinate through the hole and then... Yeah. Uh, you know, when when they're married off, well, the husband gets to break through the sewed-up vagina. I mean, it's it's sick. Yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's just so it's, sick. Yeah, and if people think that it's just about over there, no, trust me that it's not. So we have in um, the states here strong, brave, courageous efforts to pass laws in the state on the state level 
Massachusetts still hasn't passed these these laws. And if um, folks think that, you know, this is something for a community to deal with on their own, just know this also. The government of Australia just prosecuted Muslim clerics from this Bora community for having put a girl through this, successfully prosecuted them. And because of that, the Bora leadership in that country has now said clearly to their community that this is not a practice that they're supposed to continue. So well, external good. influence, yeah, ex, the, like, you know, for anybody who's walking on eggshells and thinking, oh, I don't want to touch this, people think I'm judgmental, just know that if these aren't your values, then fight in this world for your values, no matter yeah. who practices them. Like, there's no yeah, excuse under any cover for behavior that is contradictory to your values. Yeah, I mean, because I remember hearing you and Bill Moore talking on his show, yeah. and and that was a wonderful conversation because you and he were saying how, um, you know, uh, liberals, you know, uh, you know, we're yeah. so afraid of being politically correct that um, we don't call out these things often enough, right. whether it be the violence of Islam or this may be another example. You know, we we don't want to offend people's culture but you know sometimes you just have to (laughs) and i know and i know that you're a very thoughtful person like how did you come in your own intellectual spiritual evolution to this place where you believe that yes you do have a right to speak how did you come to that place because your voice is so important you're asking me? Um, well, yeah, you know, I yeah. I, I mean, I, I grew up a Catholic, like I said, a Catholic in Louisiana. Yeah. I grew up in that environment where you don't question authority. But, you know, it never really took hold real well with me. You know, I was sort of a, you know, a little bit of a rabble rouser. And, um, and then I moved to California. And I stumbled onto the idea of the sacred feminine. And at first it was... Uh, you know how it is when a woman realizes that, well, gee, you know, the divine is also in a female image. It's not just men or in the image of the divine. But then I think uh, when I started to look outside myself and I realized that these values of the sacred feminine uh, were about social justice, were about liberation theology, were fighting against domination and exploitation, whether we're talking about capitalism or we're talking about women having a their veil and have their vagina mutilated, you know, it just all became about social justice for me, you know, and, um, and, and I don't know if that answers have... your question. Yeah. Well, did you ever feel a fear of speaking out on, on the issue of other people's faiths, even though you had so courageously decided to do so in your own? Well, maybe a little bit, you know, in the mm-hmm. beginning, uh, not so much anymore. But, you know, okay. I didn't want to, I, I didn't, like, for instance, I interviewed a woman from Texas who was a, a you could tell she was a nice woman, and uh, she just wanted to do the best for everybody. And I, we were talking one day about how, uh, well, her and her lady friends couldn't wait for the minister to come to their, their, their coffee clatch because, gee, 
Willikers, if he liked some of their ideas, he might let them do some in their community. And I wanted to shake her and say, wake up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why do you need yeah. his permission? Where's yeah. your own personal yeah. authority, you know? Right. And sometimes you do have to walk on eggshells, you know, because I have friends who, for instance, are, um, you know, say progressive Christians or Christians, and uh, it's hard to, uh, you know, watch them try to make these incremental changes within the church and swallow some of the subjugation. Um, Or my own family, I have evangelicals in my family, and they think I'm going to burn in hell. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, uh, you know, it's... uh, yeah, and you're talking about the challenge, and yeah, and you're talking about the challenges of negotiating this within your own faith, you know, and within your own tradition. And so, you know, that's why I really appreciate when women like yourself cross the boundaries and stand with women in other faiths like my own. You know, that's that's why I love supporting the Catholic feminists. You know, because uh, because we're all like battling the same dynamics and. If they yeah. say, oh, 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 we can't offend, you know, the, even the, you know, because, like, obviously there's conservative Muslim women who completely disagree with me, just like there's the traditional Catholic women who completely disagree with you, right? But if, mm-hmm, you, yeah. as a lib- if you as a liberal placate them, then mm-hmm. in my faith, then you're completely negating the equivalent of you in my faith, right? Which is which well, is you me. see, I, I think I think that's I, I think that's women being complicit in their own oppression, quite frankly. Yeah, and you in know, the oppression of and, other women, right? Because yeah, you and I are more like-minded outside, like separate from our faith identities, right? In terms of what we believe, how power should be, and things like that. And so, if you were to go with the conservatives in my community, you'd be complicit in keeping me. In my empowerment down, right? Yeah, yeah. It would be it would be helping them keep you in line, so to speak. Yeah, you know. Yeah, uh, and, and yeah, and more. I wish women would see that, like, because they think that they have to be polite, and you know, we got into so much trouble because we dared uh, Hala Arafa, another writer, and myself to say, "Hey, the headscarf is not required," and we'd really appreciate it if actually you did not wear the headscarf in solidarity with Muslim women, because it's actually a symbol of oppression in our faith. And you know, because very well-intentioned liberal women wear it, thinking that they're supporting Muslim women. But hey, when you wear it, you're accepting the assumption that a woman's hair is a symbol of her quote chastity you know and purity mm-hmm. and for mm-hmm. and if she shows her hair she may tempt men which then carries the assumption that she's the responsible right for a man's right quote morality and society and if you as a liberal woman don't believe that then why are you accepting this symbol right Exactly. Well, you know, and that makes me a little crazy, too, because like this idea of women in burqas, you know, that that totally releases men from controlling their own libido. You know, I mean, are they children? Yeah. (laughs) And so then should you be wearing, yeah, should you put on a burqa in solidarity with Muslim women? Heck no, because it's actually a symbol of the oppression, you know, that, that burqa, that headscarf, 
are symbols of a value that says a woman is responsible for the piety You know, let me morality. ask you about that. You know, I yeah. have gotten in trouble with liberal women. Uh, there's a woman that I know in the community who spent time in Egypt. I mean, she's an American woman, but she spent time in Egypt, and she knew a lot of Egyptian Muslim women. And she swore to me that I was in the wrong for fighting against the veil because she said so many of these women really enjoy it. And I wonder, do they really enjoy it or are they brainwashed to enjoy it? Um, yeah, I, mean, I don't know if, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it totally makes sense to me because that's what I believe is that it's propaganda. It's back to that word that you talked about with Eve. It was religious propaganda that said that Eve was responsible for the sin of Adam. And so that is the same propaganda that says a woman's hair and a woman is responsible for the maintenance of morality and piety in the community. And so, hey, women may take that idea on and embrace it because it gives them a little bit of power, right, in its own funny Mm -hmm. way. But it's still propaganda, and like you called it brainwashing. Propaganda is brainwashing. I mean, you are flooding the brain with an idea. And and, And what we just argue, Hala and I, is, Let's just be honest about it. And, of course, women have the right to wear it if they want. They have the right to enjoy it if they want. But it's ultimately at the end of this political propaganda movement that has Mm -hmm. been put forward by the governments of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Iran, the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, these guys all want to put a scarf on our heads. And and, and hijab, the actual word, means separation and partition. And so, to me, it's a powerful word because what you are saying is you are separating a woman, you know, and yeah, and that happens in so many different ways because then we end up getting the back doors of mosques, we end up not being allowed into the main halls of lectures, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And, yeah, and yeah, it affects one, your, your yeah. It affects your quality of life. You Well, like Jimmy yeah. Carter. Jimmy Carter left his faith because yeah. he said his church prevented women from reaching their fullest potential. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this, this how we let, you know, how we let men off the hook. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's the woman's, you know, it's like the women have to be uh, chaste and pure. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I think you said in your book they're considered uh, worthless. And right. um, I, I, and it's it's just it's it's crazy, you know. It's it's yeah. crazy. I mean, and I was literally like I wouldn't like every single word out of my mouth is something that I have experienced, seen, or read in my in my life. And so that idea that unchaste woman is worthless, I heard from the pulpit of my mosque in Morgantown, West Virginia. And we know women are told this from the pulpits of many faiths. Right, uh, and and I just sat there and I couldn't believe in my ears. And then I challenged that imam, and he said, "Oh, but look, I got this sermon from this website." And then I went and tracked the website, and it was a website from Saudi Arabia. So what is that? Uh, but propaganda. It's yeah. religious propaganda, and that's the same propaganda that says that a woman can't drive, that she can't vote, that she can't, you know, uh, uh, run for political office. 
has yeah. to wear slippers, you know. Well, yeah. you know, I'm thinking too about the dis- the the warped sexuality that all of this creates too, uh, because yeah. I've been thinking about this since yeah. the terrorist attacks and everything, and the people who, uh, you know, the young men who f- I I, yeah. I think maybe felt disenfranchised in Paris and you know had those explosions. Now I'm I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here. If you're if you're a young man and you um in your life pretty much is hopeless you know you're uh you're marginalized where you live you don't have much hope of getting a job you don't really have an education you can't really mix with women um you know sex is taboo i mean you know it's almost like what do you have to live for you know right and right it, and then you're it, promised it, all these virgins right I mean, exactly you know? And, I mean, look and, at those guys who raped that woman in India with a pipe on the bus. You know, would yeah. stuff like that happen if we had, you know, these sick uh, sexual taboos and, you know, all of the these weird ideas? I mean, the unhealthy attitudes about sex, I think, right. causes so much of this, too. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's really the connection for me in... Uh, in my work is, you know, the book Tantrika took me on the path of divine love, which was supposed to, uh, you know, be of a sexual nature too. But of course, I was the most celibate of my life because what I learned is that to really um, feel be powerful, like you have to have a healthy relationship with your own sexuality. You know, in, yeah. in yogic tradition, we have seven chakras and one of them, I mentioned the crown chakra is at the top of your skull and the other and another one is in your between your legs and if you can't have your sexual energy flowing through you in a peaceful healthy way it's so destructive in anyone's right. life and and I realized that I had to really come to a healthy space about my own identity as a woman and as a woman in Islam and so when I was going through that journey, I really, it hit me that, you know, Islam has a very rich tradition of, I argue, female sexuality, sacred sexuality, and healthy sexuality. But unfortunately, these repressive, regressive interpretations of the religion put forward, especially by the government of Saudi Arabia, which crush women, Right. It's mm-hmm. the most unhealthy. Is the most unhealthy, and that's that's the ideology that these boys adopt. This ideology called Wahhabism or Salafism, and it's very puritanical. And unfortunately, you know, the um, idea of sex is so um, so unhealthy. And and you know, one man, uh, uh, Algerian French writer, dared to write about this in the New York Times some weeks ago. And, you know, he got skewered. Even liberal writers came after him for being a supposed Orientalist and all of these other, you know, words that are used to try to put people down in in liberal communities. And that man was speaking his truth, and a, a very real truth. And that's the discussion that we need to be having rather than, Arguing that he was just being judgmental and and um, yeah. and unfair, and and I I agree with you completely that we need a healthy attitude about sexuality to really come to um, a peaceful place for these young boys and men. 
Yeah, but I mean, look, and maybe this is oversimplistic, you know, because I'm not a psychologist, but it seems to me if a society has healthy attitudes about sex, then, you know, you uh, maybe they wouldn't be so violent either. You know, I mean, where do they, you know, they have no outlet uh, for that, right. you know, pent, pent up um, emotion and, you know, just all of the puberty stuff. And right. I don't know. I, I, I mean, it's uh, I mean, this might may be a gross exaggeration and forgive me if it is, but it makes you wonder if people in the Muslim world can, you know, uh, if if the majority of them, you know, if, uh, have, um, you know, have a healthy sex life or not, you know, I right. mean, can, do ma- married couples ever really have a, a healthy sex? I mean, like, uh, I mean, maybe if they're westernized, but you know, these people, these poor women who were stuck in these Middle Eastern countries, you know, under this Wahhabi, uh, you know, Islam. I mean, do they have much? hope that they may get a husband who, you know, may please them in bed, or is that, like, right. just so far-fetched? Well, I I have the same wonder. I mean, I've I, it's been my dream to do a Kinsey report on in Muslim communities, and I put together a proposal once to get funding, because that's what I would love to do as a social scientist, is really ex- examine that. How much, how many times do people orgasm? Do women orgasm? Do they uh are are they able to um you know enjoy a position other than missionary are they able to get oral sex you know there's there's right. go to fatwa go to fatwa online and you'll see all of the edicts about oral sex and its illegality and how it's uh haram or illegal in muslim communities and so those are pretty fundamental issues in terms of pleasure. And so that's why when I wrote this Islamic Bill of Rights for Women in the Bedroom, and my first right is a woman's right to pleasure. I nickname it a woman's right to or, an orgasm because this is really fundamental to to just um, physical contentment, right, in, this, in a relationship right. and intimacy. I ended up with another right was a woman's right to say yes to sex, but I also included a woman's right to say no because yes. in a marriage, marital rape is considered fair game, and that's not okay yeah. as we know. Well, and, you know, well before we go too control, much further there, everything. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, let 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 me t- let's tell listeners that you wrote the Islamic Bill of Rights for women in the bedroom and in the mosque. Um, do you happen to have it in front of you? I um, can I have, have it your in book in two seconds. Yeah. Um, yeah, because uh, maybe you can, you know, pull out a few. I mean, you've started to mention some, but I think this is incredible. The Islamic Bill of Rights for Women in the Bedroom and the Islamic Bill of Rights for Women in Mosques. And, you know, while you're looking for that, Ashra, I wanted to um, throw in here, I, you, you may know about this, um, but uh, I found out a few years ago when I was putting together a tour to Turkey, because, you know, I keep my eye on these things that happen to women and you know and right. what's going on in the world and there was a, uh, a an older woman scholar in Turkey whose name I don't remember because I never 
ever heard it pronounced, and it was one of these names that was difficult. Anyway, she was arrested because she was Uh teaching that the veil actually was pre-Islamic, and men and women used it during sexual rites. Oh, my God. Um, Does that sound familiar at all? You know, uh, her, her what she was saying doesn't, but the fact that it was pre-Islamic is a matter of historical record, so it's just so ridiculous that, again, somebody's being persecuted for just speaking truth. Well, she was like in 90, okay, so she didn't end That's up so going great. to jail. You know, they ended up letting her go, but it became a big thing. I mean, she yeah. was, fortunately, people from all around the world were writing the head of the country to get her out of jail, you know, because she was simply teaching her students um, history, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but, exactly. But it, yeah. And, um, you know, so what did, we have today is this reality where I went to uh, to Turkey last year to Istanbul, and there at the Great Blue Mosque I went for the morning prayer, and, you know, the headscarf has come back to Turkey after its period of secular uh, society under Ataturk. And where do the women get to pray now? Behind the shoe cubbies in the back mm. corner. Dark, low Oh, that's ceiling. a shame. I mean, wow. it's just ridiculous. While there's plenty of room under the blue tiles, right? And exactly. I did a, yeah. Well, here's, um, I found my... My book, Islamic Bill of Rights for Women in Mosques, is really where I began because there in the public space we are denied fundamental rights. So I have as the first right, you know, just a woman has an Islamic right to enter a mosque. A woman has a right to enter through the main door or the front door because too often we're sent out back behind the garbage dumpster. Women have an Islamic right to pray in the musalla, which is the main prayer hall, without being separated by a barrier. Uh, Women have an Islamic right to hold leadership position, including positions as prayer leaders. And so, you know, these are all, to me, all about protecting and honoring the sacred feminine. Yeah, and again, lest we forget, if you're a Catholic, you can't be a priest if you're a woman. You know, yeah. but we have the the woman priests who are defying that. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, so before people think, oh, this is just bad Islam. You know, it's not just Islam. <laughs> you know, right. uh, exactly. you know, uh, sexism is sexism, and uh, you know, uh, the Abrahamic religions all have it in uh, in spades. Yeah. Exactly. Um, did you did you want to uh, share any more of those? Or? Yeah, I can from the Bill of Rights for Women in the Bedroom. Then is okay. You know, number one is women have an Islamic right to respectful and pleasurable sexual experience. So that's pretty common sense, but still denied. Women have an Islamic right to make independent decisions about their bodies, including the right to say no to sex. And you know, another really important one to me is women have a Islamic right to exemption from criminalization or punishment for consensual adult sex. So it's written kind of funny, but the point is, if you're an adult and you it's consensual, then the state should not be punishing you. And, and right. this is really fundamental. Um, and, of course, I include in here women's right to health care, you know, and freedom from abuse. These are 
so, such important fundamental human rights that uh, for anybody to be against any of this to me is against humanity. Yeah, I mean, there's something wrong with them, not uh, not the other way around. Yeah. Well, you know, you were talking about Turkey. Um, I had Muslim friends uh, in Izmir, and um, they were. I was leading a tour there to Turkey, and one of my American friends actually married a Turkish man, but a progressive Muslim. And uh, they were telling us at the time that was when the Bush administration was still in power, and uh, that the Bush administration sided not with the intellectuals who were pushing for a more modern at Turkey, you know, where there was education and women's rights, but instead the Bush administration always sided with the conservatives who repressed the women. Why? Because they tended to be the businessmen, and it's all about the money, isn't it? Wow. That is so interesting. Um, and I, I, I'm so intrigued by that because that is, you know, the real rise of the government today that is denying uh, secular rights in Turkey, and and we have to be really honest about how we sacrifice our values in the U.S. for these supposed alliances, just like we have over the last eight years in our alliances with the Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar, and and Turkey, and you know Iran. Like you can you can try to have. Uh, new relations with all these countries, but I just think it's criminal to uh, to call people partners when they subjugate half the population. Like if yes. if, it, if any of if any of these countries were doing this to people based on race, like South Africa did with its apartheid regime. I mean, we obviously we were in bed with South Africa for far too long. But we decided that we we weren't going to accept this kind of tyranny over a population, and and that's the same evaluation that I think we need to think about when it comes to how women are treated in any society. It shouldn't be okay yeah. to treat women badly. Well, I think um, uh, I forget whether it was when Rice was Secretary of State or whether it was under Clinton as Secretary of State, but I know supposedly rape can't be used as a weapon of war anymore. But, you know, it would really speak volumes if the United States didn't do business with countries that oppressed women. But uh, right. how many countries would would that prevent the United States from, you know, from doing business with? You know, probably yeah. an awful lot. Yeah, um, but, but how quickly would they have to get with the program, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. And and you know, um and I I I understand like we just get used to it, you know, as citizens of this world we just kind of think oh this has just been the status quo for so long but i think i know for myself like i just had an epiphany you know and not that long ago so obviously i was going along with the program like most of the world but i had an epiphany that uh, where i realized this is unacceptable like we can't we can't uh, just look the other way in this yeah. mistreatment of half the population and societies and and that's when you know I ended up really I think embracing my sacred feminine and realizing that it is something that we have to fight for in all of humanity 
Yeah. Well, you know, I really enjoyed in your book, you know, you were talking about uh, your pilgrimage to Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem. And, um, I, you know, aside from my own Sacred Places book, I had never stumbled across anybody else with the courage to talk about, for instance, uh, you know, the in Mecca, the Kaaba stone being a place that used to be where goddesses were worshipped. Uh, you yeah. even talked about, uh, you know, it being a meteorite. And one of the, the Muslim scholars that I researched said that the stone used to glow green, and when it stopped right. being worshipped as the sacred feminine, it stopped glowing. Oh, that's <laughs> I thought so that was great. Oh wow! Kind of, but um, but yeah, I mean, how many Muslims do you think realize that um, Muhammad's tribe used to worship a lot Manat and Alusa, the Arabian goddesses? Do you think it's like Christians here who don't really know their history too? Well, I think that they, you know, know this time that was quote paganism. And they've dismissed it as a time of ignorance or jahiliya, but it is part of our history. It's part of our tradition, and I embrace it. I think that it's uh, unfortunately an overlooked part that should actually be, you know, tapped even more so, because some of the stories that people talk about in terms of the great status of women in Islam actually go back to the period before Islam came to the earth like the story of the Prophet Muhammad's first wife Khadija like mm-hmm. even I in my book even in my book I talk about her as a great feminist but and she was but you know the story goes that she was a caravan leader and had asked the Prophet Muhammad for his hand in marriage while she was 20 years older than him and so a new book called um, Excellent Daughters by a New York Times stringer uh, has put put a new spin on it for me because she wrote in, in her book, well, you know what? That feminist spirit of Khadija happened before the Prophet Muhammad got his revelations. So that was yeah. actually during that period that you're talking about when they were worshiping the goddesses. And right. um, she was she actually had all those rights before Islam even came to this earth, and and I that kind of blew my mind, and I was like, oh my gosh, like that's again propaganda, right? Being you know yeah. sort of appropriate, like history being appropriated to further your own narrative, um, and 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 I think we would be well served to actually study the ways in which women did enjoy rights before Islam came to that region, right. And, you know, I should have read it before I got on the phone with you, but I remember in my Sacred Places book, I do have Mecca uh, as a sacred place of goddess because of this, this pre-Islamic time. And the whole idea of... Of, of circumambulating the Kaaba stone the seven times, that's pre-Islamic too, according to some of my research. Um, oh, yeah, it, it, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah, and it, so, I, I mean, it's just because, look, it's like the, the Christians do the same thing. You know, they co-opted so much of the pagan stuff and, you know, and called it theirs. I mean, Mary and Jesus, uh, you, you know, is Isis and Horus, and, uh, you know, salvation was first taught uh, in the religion of Isis and Osiris before it was a Christian thing. So, I, I mean, if people would just look back, 
you know, right. and not just right. swallow everything from the pulpit or, I don't know, what do they call the pulpit in the mosque? <laughs> they call it the um, minbar, right. The minbar, um, but, you know. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, I'll never forget that um, there was an imam at a, a event, public event that we had, and he um, – it was a, a public event about women's rights at mosques, and he had agreed to do this panel as long as I wasn't on the panel. So he was silencing me. And, you know, it was a different time in my life, and I I said, okay. So I sat in the audience, and he took my book, and he sat there, and he waved my book, and he was particularly offended by the fact that I had called Hajar a single mother and that I had talked about the goddesses being worshipped in Mecca. And I sat there and I stayed silent. If, you know, it was just unbelievable because I just took it as he, um, you know, did this smear campaign against me. As R- ridiculed you, yeah. Yeah, ridiculed, ridiculed me with, with a copy of my book there. But, um, but I'll tell you something that happened. My son, I took him there to that event, and he was in the very back playing on a gaming system that I I, I had taken him with so that he wouldn't get bored. And you know what? On the drive home, that boy, my little baby, was so sick to his stomach. He vomited the entire night. And I thought to myself, I cannot expose him anymore to this kind of toxic, you know, fumes coming into his system. It might have just but been you know a what? Flow. But you know what? Right. Um it, it it might have been it might have been a good thing for him yeah. to uh, yeah. see the reality. Because look, it's it reminds right. me of the Greek Orthodox. We have a Greek Orthodox church here in Los Angeles called Saint Sophia's. And you know, the Greek Orthodox they they won't admit that the Holy Spirit used to be Sophia and the feminine before it purposefully got changed to um you know to uh you know the male gender and i mean it, right. it's like some of these people will just want to deny history like the christians who think the world is is 6000 years old or right. you know there were never women leaders in the christian church you know i mean they're just in in a place of denial about um history and um i just wish more people would take responsibility for their own education and uh, then these people would be neutered and they would become yeah. irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, and I agree. I mean, I he was um, exposed to it. He knew it then, and um, and and yet I I realized, boy, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to. Uh, I want I want him to be free of this stuff, and and that was really good for me as a mom to see that to you know just um, process it for myself because I thought yeah. You know, these and are, see these that he are, was so um, offended by it, you know. I mean, yeah, he was you know, so offended his, by it. And, yeah, and his being, because I'll tell you, raising a boy, I do. I did learn that you're not born a feminist. You have to learn to become a feminist. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know. And just like every woman's sort of, not a feminist either, like yeah. these women who are cutting these other women or the Sarah yeah. Palins of the world or the Margaret Thatchers of the world, you know, these aren't feminists. You know, these are people who prop up the patriarchy and, you know, they're complicit in, um, you know, the the exploitation of the rest of us. And they need to be called out. 
Um, yeah, you know, but the, the, it, and it, and I think you know it's important to like always remember that it it can be within your own self, within your family, within your you know political party, within your community, within your place of worship. Like it's it's not always over there, right? It's within us, mm-hmm. and and that's, it's yeah. like that's what I. That's the biggest thing is always keeping a check on yourself and and the people around you also. Yes, yes. Um, well, you know, just a couple more questions if you if you have time. I know we went over, but I'm so enjoying talking to you. Um, I, I I wonder if you could say something about the silent Muslim moderate majority. I know you mentioned the Aga Khan Foundation. I mean, is there anything going on in the Muslim community to sort to uh, fight back against the extremism? Um, oh I don't, yeah. Don't think we. We don't see it, though, you know, and it makes people think it's not happening. Yeah, you know, I'm so excited that, you know, my book, I called it Standing Alone, and this last December I connected with a group of Muslims uh, that I've known over the years, and we stood together at the National Press Club and declared uh, the launch of a new initiative that we're calling the Muslim Reform Movement, Integral to our movement is the idea of human rights and women's rights. Other ideas are the idea of rejecting violent interpretations of faith and rejecting political Islam and and promoting peace and secular governance. And I'm so now I'm so thrilled that like I'm standing together with others. And the first act that we did was to go up to. Massachusetts Avenue, where the Islamic Center of Washington sits, uh, largely influenced by the government of Saudi Arabia, and we posted on the door of that mosque precepts for our Muslim reform movement that included these this declaration for peace, human rights, and, and secular governance. And, and, and sure enough, the guard tore the uh, Paper down immediately, but but we made our declaration and, and we've gone forth into the world now, in in many different ways. Um, and a colleague of mine from that movement, Rahil Raza, was also on Bill Maher not long ago, and it's it's really exciting because I I feel like it's a theology of Islamic feminism that we're putting forward as the antidote to Islamic extremism. And, and mm-hmm. our 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 solution is one in, you know intended to make this world a better place, to bring peace to the world and and to challenge sexism and intolerance. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, I, you know, I have to remind myself, you know, when I lived in the South and we only met uh, Christians and Baptists and had no exposure to, I mean, heaven forbid, no exposure to gay people. I mean, I know some people I know don't have any exposure to black people. You know, so they don't have any exposure to to Muslims. And they uh, only see what's on the news. And it's so unfortunate because, I mean, I know so many Muslim people who are wonderful people. And, uh, you know, just like, I mean, there's good and bad in all religions and all, uh, you know, all traditions. And it, um, it, it, 
you know, it, it, I just wish there were a way uh, for you to have more of a microphone and a platform. But I think that for so many of us, I mean, I wish that there were a way for those of us who um, are, are trying to put sacred feminine values in the world uh, right. had more of a microphone or a platform. Because it, it, cause in the end, it would all be about love and equality and partnership and negotiation and peace, no matter yeah. whether we call it Islam or goddess spirituality or Christianity. I mean, because really right. we're all talking about the same thing. We're just, we just have different labels for it. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I invite all your listeners to find us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, our, our Facebook page is the Muslim Reform Movement. On Twitter, our handle is at the Muslim Reform, and you'll see that we're there, we're engaged, uh, become a part of our community. In in Buddhism, they call the spiritual community the Sangam, right? And, and, you know, become part of our spiritual community because we welcome Muslims and our neighbors. We call them, you know, people of all faiths or non-faiths, all spiritualities, um, just people who believe in humanism, um, right and, and you know and sign our petition on change.org with our declaration it's uh their values that i think everyone believes in you know their right. values that are values of humanity and and um and you know and just like if anybody has any doubts like just come on to any of our uh our platforms and have, and talk with us and and we're there to answer any questions and to bring humanity to the conversation so that, just like you say, you can know Muslims who are uh, struggling just like you are for a better world. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's how, um, you know, the gay community was so successful uh, with gay rights because when they became more out in the open and people realized uh-huh. that they, you know, they were their neighbors and they were their, um, you know, friends at school and, you know, and they realized that they were just, we were all, that we're really all the same, you know. Oh, that's um, a great point, yeah. Well, I'm so excited, yeah. you know, we have um, a pro bono person doing our graphic design and creating a new website. And, and I, I actually, you know, was thinking today that that's exactly what, you know, where I want to spend my energy. I mean, I'm a journalist and a writer and a communicator, and I think the best thing that I could try to do is, in all the platforms that we have available, is amplify the voices, you know, all the people yeah. that I know. Find out who yeah. that. Turkish woman was that you know you're talking about earlier because she was the pioneer you know that they've existed it was my grandmother decades ago it was women in Egypt decades ago all these incredible strong people who are just forgotten or unknown and what I I think I was thinking today what I want to do is just step by step amplify the voices of each person you know that we know until it, everybody knows somebody who is a muslim feminist and imagine the day when we are the loudest voices <laughs> yes yeah and i think it's so possible it's so possible i do too I yeah do too. And, and you know of course i'm going to look at radio programs and all of this from from your great work too and try to um 
try to see how it is that you do what you do so we can steal all your good ideas and borrow them for <laughs> Well, work, I'm happy so. to happy to help any way I can. And I, I know yeah. I kept you a whole half hour longer than I told you it would be, but thank you so much for your oh. time. And oh, I, I mean, I, I want to give you the last word. Is is there uh, anything else you'd like to say about any of this before we say goodnight? Well, I just want to you know encourage everyone to constantly look deep into their hearts for the values in which they believe, the values that they want to see expressed in this world. Ask people the tough questions because that's how we come to clarity about how we're going to define our world. Um, You know, thank you to you, Karen, for uh, having this conversation, for inviting me to talk to you and to your guests because if, if we overcome our fears, this is what I learned. As long as we overcome our fear step by step, we become stronger. And 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 please, uh, you know, overcome your fears if anyone has any left on talking about the tough issues inside of Islam and Muslim communities. Because if you're thinking it, trust me, it's for real. And um, and and it's okay to talk about it. So thank you for having this kind of conversation. It's what we need in the world. I'll just do in our little part and thank you for your, you know, courageous journey uh, as well. I mean, uh, um, I mean, you're a major, major voice out there, uh, you know, for feminist Muslims and uh, moderation and uh, all of that. And I, I'm just glad you were, um, you know, able to do the show tonight and and uh, share your wisdom with my listeners. And so, why oh, don't you, why you. don't you tell folks um, the titles of your two books and where they can find them? If, if you would Sure, um, so my first book is called Tantrika Tra- Traveling the Road of Divine Love It's uh, T-A-N-T-R-I-K-A And then my second book is called Standing Alone An American Woman's Struggle for the Soul of Islam And you can find both of them On Amazon.com for sure uh, I hope there might be An independent bookstore where you can order it Also but um, you can find my writings on my website, asranomani.com, A-S-R-A-N-O-M-A-N-I.com. And, um, and, and you know, I'm right there, right on, on um, Twitter and Facebook and email, asra at asranomani.com. Always happy to talk to folks. And, um, and, and just like you, love to travel and meet people. So love to go into communities and have these conversations and I hope we can do that through the Muslim reform movement in, in well if you ever find your, if you ever find yourself in LA we'll have to um, you know have you talk to our community uh, without oh, a doubt I'd love to do that. I would love to that okay. would be like a pilgrimage for me and the Bill of Rights uh, are those listed on your websites yeah they are on the website and then um, uh and, and they're in the back of my book. Yes, great, wonderful. Yeah, that's where I saw it, in the back of your uh, Standing Alone book. Well, Asra, again, thank you so much uh, for being who you are and for your work and for talking to my listeners and myself tonight. I really appreciate it. Great, thank you. And I say namaste to bless the divine in each one of you that's listening. Okay, good night. And I right, hope we'll night. be in touch. Bye-bye. Thank, oh, we will. Bye-bye. 
Well, if you're just tuning in, uh, this is Karen Tate, hostess of Voices of the Sacred Feminine, where we discuss goddess, the divine feminine, and the resurging interest in right brain thinking and the feminine consciousness, whether the great she be deity archetype or ideal, and how these new values and benchmarks have the substance to save the world. You've just been listening to tonight's guest, uh, feminist Muslim journalist and social justice activist, uh, the wonderful Ashra Namini, and we've been talking about her wonderful book, Standing Alone. Um, So good on so many levels. If uh, you've wondered what it's like to be a feminist Muslim woman, um, this is a a great read, and it's a quick read and an easy read. Um, Definitely uh, give yourself the gift uh, of reading that book. Well, um, I have a few things I want to share with you tonight. Um, uh, For some time on the show, I've described the film uh, Dancing with Gaia by Joe Carson. Uh, Well, Joe uh, has written uh, a new expanded second edition of the book um, uh, Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feriferia Path. Uh, Feriferia calls itself a love culture for wilderness. It connects you to the fairy spirits of the land and the stars around you and aims to create uh, paradisal sanctuaries all over the earth. Uh, You might not know, but it's rooted in ancient Crete, the Eleusine Mysteries, troubadour practices, and megalithic traditions. Feriferia celebrates the goddess as the merry maiden called Kore. Um, With laughter and play, they say that Kore carries keys to the future. And um, there are some great quotes uh, about the book. People have really liked it. Uh, One of them is uh, Jason Mankey. Uh, He's been involved with paganism for about two decades, and he spent the last ten as a speaker, writer, and high priest. And uh, I want to share his quote uh, about um, Celebrate Wildness. He said, uh, I began wildness reluctantly, but within 15 minutes I was all in and found myself absolutely entranced by its pages. Some of that is no doubt due to the beautiful artwork of Fred Adams that just about leaps off the page. Why aren't all of the images in this book available as fine quality prints to hang around my ritual space? But this book is more than art. It's wonderfully written and really serves as a comprehensive how-to on feriferia. There's a lot of great history in here as well, but it's the doing and the philosophies that grabbed me. I was worried I'd find feriferia remote and hard to understand or rather dated as a philosophy, and I'll happily admit to being completely wrong. I found so much of my own belief within the pages of wildness that I'm actively planning to incorporate some of it into my coven work. Fred and Svetlana's vision from 50 years ago is just as urgent and as beautiful today as it was back then. The Ferifarian vision as it relates to the Wheel of the Year is one I think most pagans would benefit from. Celebrate Wildness is a true hardcover art book printed on heavy paper with images of goddess photos, symbols, and diagrams on almost every page. It would make a fabulous gift. I think it would make a great coffee table book or conversation book, certainly a conversation starter. And it's available from the Farah Feria website, and I'll spell that for you. It's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. That's Farah dot org. Um, Well, I want to remind you that uh, you can catch any of my shows from the archives. You can also listen via iTunes as well. 
And I want to say that prayers go out to Pat, our roving reporter, who had a head-on collision last week. She is recovering from some rather devastating injuries. Uh, Your name is on my altar, Pat. Please get well soon. And you know what? Try, if you can, to use the downtime to do something you've always been too busy to do. Uh, Also, thanks goes out uh, to Jillian for helping me at uh, the last Joseph Campbell Roundtable with audiovisual. And also, uh, prayers go out to another good friend. Uh, Her name is Melody. Uh, Been a friend a long time. Her father passed away last week, and uh, she and her family are dealing with uh, that grief. So, um, prayers to you as well, Melody. Your name is on my ISIS altar. Um, Remember uh, what Goddess teaches us, dear listeners, what you nurture and tend to survives and thrives, what you neglect withers, and as an incentive for contributions to the show of $100 or more, you'll get my three-CD set of interviews with Goddess Advocates discussing uh, her sacred places around the world, which can't be found on any Internet archive. Uh, You can only get these from me directly. And if you can't afford that larger contribution, I'm sincerely grateful to take smaller offerings, and you will get a gift, too, for your generosity. Uh, Now, this is where you can actually win a copy of my book, Walking an Ancient Path. Uh, If you're one of the first three people to email me at uh, my email address, karentate108 at ca.rr.com, and tell me about yourself and why you'd like the book, Uh, remember to give me your mailing address. Uh, this applies as, as long as you're in the United States, uh, you will be the winner. So three lucky people. Yeah, this is the freebie portion of the show. Uh, now be sure to follow those instructions. Um, uh, tell me about yourself, why you'd like the book. Send me your mailing address. And uh, that's all part of winning the book about living a goddess-inspired life and also hearing about magical experiences and sacred pilgrimages. So if you uh, think you'd like a copy of Walking an Ancient Path, here's your opportunity to uh, get a copy free. And speaking of freebies, um, you also have a chance to get a free copy of Sage Woman Magazine, celebrating the goddess and every woman for over 30 years. Sage Woman Magazine brings the wisdom of women's spirituality to over 10,000 women every 88-page issue. You can call their toll-free number, 888-SAGE-WOMAN, that's 888-724-3966, and mention uh, that you heard this ad on Voices of the Sacred Feminine for a free sample issue. Uh, You can also check out Sage Woman online at uh, sagewoman.com. So, you see, besides all the freebies on my website, you can get a free copy of Sage Woman magazine and also a free copy of my book if you're one of the first three people that emails me. And if you do go to my website, um, as many of you know, um, I think it's a reflection of the idea um, 
of, of many of the things we talk about here, women's empowerment, the sacred feminine, right brain thinking, uh, feminine consciousness. And as I've always said, you know, adversaries of the sacred feminine, well, they tried to sweep away awareness and knowledge of her for all time. And with that sweeping away, when the great she was made to disappear because of the religion of patriarchy, of selfish or disconnected men and their war gods, well, women and their power, their leadership, their spiritual authority were thwarted, repressed, became taboo, diminished, disrespected, demonized. That's why here on the show I'm dedicated to recovering the great she, whether she be deity, archetype, or ideal, or maybe she's embodied in the wonderful women and men who are guests on my show, like Ashra Namini tonight. Yes, we intend to defy, to taste the forbidden fruit, to be powerful and uppity women and men, to throw off the shackles. We're going to look under every rock, behind every locked door, peer into the abyss of the past so we know why things are the way they are, how they have come to be so turned on their head and so unnatural. And we're going to go about setting things right. Why? Well, if we want to save ourselves as a species, I think we have no other choice. If we want to restore balance, harmony, wholeness, sanity, it's women and our like-minded brothers armed with ideas of the sacred feminine who will set things back on course. There's a couple quotes I wanted to share with you tonight uh, that I think speak to some of this important work. Uh, the first one is uh, Gloria Steinem. She said, the more polarized the gender roles, the more violent the society. Yes, I'll repeat that. The more polarized the gender roles, the more violent the society. And, of course, we see that uh, out there, don't we? And uh, one of my own quotes that some of you um, have turned into memes on uh, Facebook The great she is challenging us to do what's right for the most of us, for the sake of humanity and the planet. And that's from my Goddess Calling book. And uh, to close tonight's show, uh, I will just uh, repeat what have become the mottos for the show. The first is uh, from the 19th century German philosopher, author Schopenhauer. All truth passes through three phases. First, it's ridiculed second, it's violently opposed, and third, it's accepted for being self-evident. And the second, which uh, is also the motto of the show, because I believe we're living it, it's by Gandhi. He said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Yes, indeed. And winning is what Bernie Sanders did Tuesday night, and I think he's on a winning streak. He's expected Saturday to pick up some more states, and I hope you're also feeling the burn because I know I am. (laughs) Well, thank you, my dear listeners. You are gas in my tank. Thank you for tuning into the show this week and every week. Uh, I will not have a show next Wednesday. I will be out of town, but we will certainly be back uh, the first Wednesday in April. Please avail yourself of uh, some of the many wonderful uh, interviews that are in the archives. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful Astara holiday or Easter. 
with with uh, however you refer to it. And let me close tonight by saying, may Goddess, Deity, Archetype, or Ideal, embrace you in her golden wings. Good night, and thank you, Ashra Nominee, for a wonderful show tonight. Good night. <laughs>